Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South Podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, plenty to get to today. I am back in the suburbs of Chicago at my mom's house. Connor was recording from a closet like Harry Potter guy. <laughs> I know, I'm actually in my childhood bedroom, which is not much bigger than a closet, but it's actually, sound-wise, hopefully this this sounds really, really good. I think it should, because there's so much stuff in here. I, had, I was in one of those situations in which the second I moved out, my mom... When I moved out for good, not just like moved out to college, but when I moved out for good, my mom was like, oh, all of my craft fair stuff that I use for my side hustle, it is going in your childhood bedroom, mm-hmm. which is fine. Totally fine. I'm okay with that. It'd be weird if my childhood bedroom was still as is. One less thing that I'm going to have to worry about if and when she moves out of this house, which probably coming in the next year. So, but yeah, long way of saying I'm back in my childhood bedroom. The boys okay. are back in town officially. Officially, yeah. My brother's going to be coming up a little bit later. Uh, Recorded an interview with him. Ryan gets into a lot of different Michigan stuff. He watched so, so much Michigan football this year. So just like we did last year when we brought Ryan on to talk a little bit of Ohio State ahead of the national championship, same sort of deal. So Georgia fans and all fans of college football are just kind of interested in this Harbaugh thing with Michigan, what he's been able to do. Maybe a little gambling interest. Definitely stick around for that. Oh, by the way, bury the lead. We've got my guy Joe Moorhead. Oh, yeah. Coming up in a little bit. Joe's doing double duty right now. He's Akron's new head coach. He's also coaching Oregon in the bowl game. So my man likes to work. Mm -hmm. He's not just taking the easy way out. He's not like, oh, hey, new coaching staff at Oregon. I'm just going to peace out. No, 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 no. Joe is like, if I got a chance to hang a 50 burger, I'm going to hang a 50 burger. That's what he's going to set out to do. So um, great, great stuff coming. And then we're going to do a little bit of like pre-Christmas bowl games. So Florida and Mizzou, we'll get into those two. But before we do that, for all that, we're finally going to do all SEC snubs. I know these things came out like two weeks ago. There's the AP team and the coaches team. For mm-hmm. those who don't necessarily kind of, uh, when, the, way, well, the way that I refer to these, you know, sometimes it's unanimous, sometimes it's not. So sometimes I'll, I'll be talking about the coaches team. Sometimes we'll be talking about the AP team. I'll try and preface which one that I'm talking about. But we're just talking about snubs today. I thought I was going to have to get up here and talk about C-Rod only being a second-team guy, but he actually got first-team love in the AP, so I won't necessarily dig into why I thought he was more deserving than Brian Robinson, with C-Rod having 200 more rushing yards on fewer carries than Brian Robinson. I'll instead talk about his teammate, friend of the show, friend of the program, as Will, you would say. Friend of the program. (laughs) Friend of the program, Wandell Robinson. I thought he should have been first-team All-SEC for the AP slot over Valus Jones Jr. And part of the AP slot is special teams, obviously. It's just all-purpose, all-encompassing. But And I, I get it to a certain extent because Jones, he's the, he's the national leader in punt return average. He's second in the SEC in kickoff return average. He had a score there as well. But Wandell wasn't necessarily a full-time returner like he he wasn't a full-time punt returner they would stick Mm -hmm. him back there occasionally and he didn't return kicks at all i still would have given him this spot because of how dynamic of a playmaker he was as an all-purpose guy in that offense he was their top deep deep threat he was their underneath guy they could run end arounds with him you can kind of line him up anywhere and he would go and make plays for you set the program record for receptions fourth in power five and catches eighth in power five in receiving and he ushered in this new era of Kentucky's offense and what they're trying to do with the doppelganger Liam Cohen. And again, like not trying to take away from Vales Jones or anything like that, the USC transfer, he was a really, really solid special teams player, but 
you know, he was Tennessee's number two receiver. He was their number two receiver. And I thought just in terms of the true AP association, I thought Wandell made a little bit more sense because I think he's just good enough to be a first-team All-SEC receiver, though Jameson Williams, Traylon Burks, they were two of the top, I don't know, like five or six receivers in all of college football. So I don't necessarily say that Wandell should have made it over those guys, but I still would have probably found a way to get him onto the first team, and I would have done so with the AP Association. Phil Mathis. Nobody is ever going to get upset when a Bama player doesn't get unanimous first team All-SEC love, but I thought Phil Mathis, a.k.a. Federian Mathis, but he gets called Phil on the broadcast and all these different things if you're kind of wondering who exactly I'm talking about. But I thought he should have been first team, and instead AP left him off entirely and coaches gave him the second team nod. We talk a lot about Will Anderson, understandably so. The guy is a freak. He's in on every play. But part of the reason that I think that we talk about Will Anderson, the way that he is able to disrupt some of these games is because he will turn a ball carrier into the arms of Mathis, who by that point, Mathis has already beaten his guy and put himself in position to make a play. And I realize it's tough with defensive tackle because you're really only giving two spots and one of them is going to Jordan Davis. Like there's no way Jordan Davis was gonna get left off first team. And right. I totally get that. And you could have actually probably made the, the case for both of his teammates as well, with Jalen Carter, Devontae Wyatt. I thought Car- Carter kind of trailed off a touch down the stretch, and I knew he was like he was sick for the first part of November, so that's a little bit tough. And then with Devontae Wyatt, he's also got the PFF numbers. He is, I think he's like the highest graded or second highest graded defensive tackle in the country, according to PFF. But I do sort of wonder at times if he's the third best player on that defensive line. And if that's the case, then what are we talking about for a first team all-SEC honor. Um, but I just think the, the numbers with Mathis also kind of, they they coincided with what we saw on on a weekly basis with him. A guy, I, in my opinion, didn't really take plays off in the mm-hmm. way that a lot of defense tackles do. 46 tackles, 10 TFLs, eight sacks, six hurries, two fumble recoveries, and a force, force fumble. That is pretty, gar- pretty darn good for a defensive tackle. Really, really good. And some are gonna say, well, look, <laughs> Anyone could look good playing alongside Will Anderson. And I could probably say the same thing about playing alongside Jordan Davis. But maybe there's a little bit of this knock because I don't really think that Mathis is a Christian Barmore or like a Quinnen Williams level of dominant, which we've seen from the defensive tackle position at Alabama in the last three years. I still, however, would have liked to have seen him on first team. I think you can make a really similar argument for Neil Neil Farrell at LSU, somebody who was huge for that team this year and kind of the defensive revival that they had down the stretch. Any thoughts on that? Or I got I got another one here and a guy that I'm going to talk about a lot. But any any thoughts on those those first couple guys? Well, um, no, yeah, I think I think just generally, I'll, I'll just say this real quickly. I think generally, like looking up and down, I have the AP one pulled up, but like I. It seems like there weren't a ton of guys that I'm like mad about. There are guys that you're like, oh, like where is he? But I actually wasn't either. Yeah, no, like, like, and like, here's my thing. 
with how bad the preseason team was, I was expecting to like have these open and be like, these are wildly different. This is bad. This is whatever. But a lot of the guys are like, yeah, okay. Like I could see why. Yeah, like Neil Farrell is like, yeah, second team because LSU's defense was bad for half the year. It's like same thing with like Arkansas's guys. It's like, well, yeah, bumper pool, second team, but same thing. Arkansas started off strong, faded late. So it's like, right. yeah, there's not really like a guy that you're just kind of like, where is he? There are a couple of these like sneaky guys that we love. I mean, Tyler Beatty was unanimous first team running back. That's great to see. So yeah, I, I think just kind of overall, it's like, and, 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 and a lot of the time you talked about like the Bama fatigue a little bit, but there are some of these guys where it's like, yeah, like Traylon Burks is like pretty clearly in that first team. Like there there's, if you had like your guy at your school, there are very few of those guys, like smaller school guys that didn't get the hype they deserved looking up and down this first and second team. Yeah, linebacker, I thought linebacker and quarterback were like the two most kind of obvious. Yeah. Where like linebacker, I mean, Damon Clark had a ridiculous year for LSU, and then obviously Will Anderson and Kobe Dean. Like you're, you're not really going to deviate from that. And if you wanted to get a little bit tricky with him, be like, oh, well, Will Anderson plays Jack linebacker, so maybe you could make the justification for putting him on the defensive line. Ah, eh, whatever. You don't really need to get into that. If they want to start getting into like, oh, this guy's an edge versus you mm-hmm. know being an interior linebacker and do the PFF thing, whatever, that's fine. But I thought just in terms of the way that they usually break this down, that's totally fine. A little bit different with like the secondary though. Yep. And we're struggling to kind of come up with some of these distinctions sometimes. And for a guy who, like Antonio Johnson, he's somebody who I think should have been a first team all SEC guy. Mm-hmm. And he is one of my, my, my snubs in my opinion. Didn't get any love from the coaches, second team from the AP. The coaches did the interceptions thing with the defensive backs. Yeah, and hate that's that. why Jalen. I, like that that's just kind of annoying and Jalen Foster look we, we love we we praised him for his story at South Carolina great perseverance a guy who really stuck it out and has meant so much to that team but in my opinion like who am I taking it's the year that he had like am I taking the year that he had over Antonio Johnson's no I'm just not he, mm-hmm. he but Foster gets the benefit of the doubt because he's got the interception numbers and that's what a lot of people like to look at and I I don't necessarily have a gripe with Monteric Brown because Brown also an interceptions type thing, five interceptions on the year, but super clutch. Like every time Arkansas felt like it needed a big time play, there he was. Like LSU, AM, like dude just steps up and makes the the big time turnover that you need. But those were the first teamers. Mm-hmm. Johnson didn't even get second team love from from the coaches, which to me is just baffling. Meanwhile, Darian Kendrick made it and we're, we're kind of wondering, all right, like, is this really fair to judge him off of the Alabama game? Because that didn't do him any favors, right? Like, maybe some of this, like, this stuff was done before then. And I get that George's pass defense was good, and maybe you shouldn't hold all of that against him. But Darian Kendrick wasn't a difference maker, in my opinion. And Antonio Johnson was. And he was a difference maker in a defense that had so much talent. A&M fans are they're they're bummed to watch all these dudes head off to the NFL. So many studs on the defensive line, as we talk about all the time, and they're going to have a lot of turnover in the secondary. Mm-hmm. Plus, Mike Elko being gone, all of that stuff hurts. But Antonio Johnson is a legit star, and he's going to come in, or at least he should be coming into next year as such. He had the number four grade of any corner by PFF. But he's not like this outside corner. He's not used typically in that type of role. He's also not like, oh, he's your, you know, he's he's only playing in nickel packages or whatever, and he's just kind of your slot corner, and it's because he's inferior. Mike Elko put him everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I actually think Antonio Johnson is at his best playing near the line of scrimmage 
or when he can time up a blitz rushing off the edge. He lined up either in the box or on the defensive line 173 times. Don't treat him like a typical corner. Don't treat him like a safety. He doesn't really play safety that much. Mm -hmm. He's kind of your rover. He's your do-it-all. He's just a football player. And he had games where he would easily play like 80 snaps. He had one game, I think he played like 94 snaps this year. That's insane. Mm -hmm. And for the guy that does a little bit of everything and does all of it well, I don't think it's necessarily fair to compare him in the same way that we do like, oh, this outside lockdown corner. And look, it's not fair to compare anyone on the honey badger. I'm not saying, <laughs> look, look, I know, I know, I know. I'm not saying that Antonio Johnson is a honey badger. I know, I'm not going for a lazy comp here, but sometimes when I watch him and I think about just how physical he is everywhere on the field, not just when he has a head of steam, but even like, oh, hey, it's a five yard out and that guy's bringing the boom. I, I will think back to watching the way that Honey Badger did that at LSU. Again, he is not on that level. I don't think he will get to that level. And I don't want to upset any LSU fans, yourself included, Will, by saying that. But I think he is very, very special at what he does as a sophomore. Uh, I thought he just should have gotten that first team all SEC love instead of getting left entirely off the team by the coaches. Did I upset you by saying that? No, I think that like the that's like the best form of flattery, right? Like in the two years since there has been like a, oh, this person is the new Joe Burrow. Like every year it's like this person is the new Joe Burrow. And you know they're not because then the next year it moves on to the this person is the next Joe Burrow. Same thing with um Honey Badger, man. Like that's what um old boy from Michigan was right after him. That's like every year the dude from Clemson, every year there's like a new guy who's like, This is the new Honey Badger. So I think it's a term of endearment. I I, I love that everyone gets compared to him. I'm going to also, so I'll, I'll do something here. I, I know that was, that was supposed to be snubs. And I actually thought, like we talked about, for the most part, like everything pretty much made sense. There's only a few kind of gripes here or there. I'm going to applaud the coaches in the AP for not doing something stupid. Mm -hmm. Jalen Weidermeyer was a Mackey Award finalist. One of the three finalists, and Brock Bowers wasn't. Now, in, on the SEC teams, all SEC, we recognize it. Brock Bowers was first team in both. Jalen Weidermeyer was second team in, in both. Mm -hmm. That made perfect sense. But in the Mackey Award, I need to just vent about this for a second because I don't know how on God's green earth you say that Weidermeyer had a better year than Brock Bowers. Mm -hmm. He just didn't. Like, there's no way. There is no way that you can look at anything that they did and say that Weidermeyer had the better season. Mackey Ward didn't go to Weidermeyer, went to Trey McBride. And look, like, I, I have been pro Weidermeyer for the last two and a half years. Anybody that knows, that is listening to this podcast knows that I am not hating on a kid. But look, I'll say this about this. Bowers had the second highest PFF grade of any Power 5 tight end. And the Minnesota guy ahead of him was really just more of a blocking tight end, so I don't even know if he really... <laughs> Goes without that. saying, course, yeah. <laughs> obviously. So if the Mackey Award said that the blocking was the only reason why Weidermeyer got more love than Bowers, that doesn't really make sense either because Bowers hasn't beat in every pass blocking, in every pass catching category, and then he also has him dominated in the run blocking stuff as well. Like... Bowers is number 41 among FBS tight ends in run blocking, according to PFF, which mm. is way better, way better than Weidermeyer, who, 
look, he kind of had a down year. He just kind of did. Like, not just with that, but even diehard AM fans will tell you that Bowers was far more deserving of getting that national love. And Weidemeyer was a bit of a liability with some of the drops that impacted him kind of middle of the season. It was, you know, not necessarily the year that he was hoping to have. He's still a tremendous player. I still hope he goes to the NFL and he gets all sorts of success, but just wasn't necessarily that type of year. Easily, in my opinion, Brock Bowers, number one power five tight end in America. If you want to talk about McBride, who had all the yards and whatnot in Colorado State, all right, whatever, that's on you. But if he didn't earn that that finalist thing with the Mackey Award because he's only a true freshman, then that's dumb. Like, what are, what are we really doing here? If that's, if that's like a barrier to entry of like, oh, you're only a freshman, you can't <laughs> earn this. Like, I thought we were over that. We, we have enough way to to evaluate these guys. There's the torches on national TV like every single week. So that's just a... A dumb thing. Yeah, Anyways, imagine I that being your only like. It's like that's that's what you're gatekeeping, bro. The Mackey Award, like that's your thing in life. And like, yeah, I'll, I'll say this real quick about Bowers. It's like you really can't do the system tight end thing with Bowers because number one, it's not like they had like a super dynamic offense. I think even Georgia fans will tell you that. Number two, they gave him so many chances to get out in space, and he was even better in space than he was within the flow of the offense. Like you saw that in the SEC championship game, which is obviously yep. just kind of right before these teams came out, but a lot of the voting already taken place. That was probably his best game. I mean, if you take the, the competition level in the in the um, account, but when you look at these big plays he had, man, I mean that run he had against Georgia Tech, or I guess the catch and run he had, it was just like, oh, you're oh. faster than everybody on this field. Like it's not like, oh, look cute, like Sean Payton, like Josh Hill tied in screen. It's like, no, no, we're gonna get him a screen. He's gonna throw a dude to the ground and take off, and the DBs are gonna struggle to catch him, and he's yep. huge. Like he's just, he's a freak, dude. He's he's easily, I think, coming into the next year, gonna be like what, like a top five player coming back. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun to 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 watch kind of what he evolves into because maybe the touchdown numbers aren't gonna quite be there because that dude's gonna get double teamed so much. Yeah. But it's kind of crazy that we came into the year talking about these next steps that Darnell Washington's gonna make and and oh <laughs> Eric Gilbert like Eric what's, Gilbert. What, what's gonna evolve of that and now Eric Gilbert has become an afterthought and Brock Bowers like if you were if you had to to have one like an offensive player for the next two years. Are there like all right? So like, I'll narrow this down even more. Non quarterbacks that you could take for the next two years. Are there five players in all of college football that that you would rather have than Brock Bowers? Probably oh, not. No. And dude, that's the funny Probably thing. Not. Like, you know how Kirby views like distraction and stuff. Like, if Eric showed up tomorrow, it was like, hey, let's work. It's like. I don't know if we need you, man. Like, you might want to go somewhere else because it's like they filled that position even better. Like, he, obviously, Eric had a great season at LSU, and like I've been very pro Eric, but it's like what Powers did this year is just as good, and he has more eligibility, and he's just kind of a like down to earth type of dude. So it's like, yeah, like that role, the, the role was open, it got filled though. Does Eric Gilbert technically have four years of eligibility left? Oh, I think wow. He, does. he actually might because he didn't yeah. play this year and then last year didn't count. That's actually hilarious. He actually might have so, more eligibility than Brock Powers. Yeah, so technically, like, he could use a red shirt on this year and then 2020 didn't count against anyone, so you don't have to use a red shirt for that. So, yeah, Eric Gilbert, four years of eligibility left. Uh, we'll <laughs> wait and see what the next step is there. But uh, any other, like, all SEC type things um, that, I, that I forgot about here, I thought maybe. We were going to get kind of an interesting battle down to the wire with uh, with second team, but then Matt Corral against Will Rogers, not against him technically, but in the Egg Bowl we right. saw Matt Corral play better, and even though Will Rogers has some of the has some of the better numbers overall and cumulative, of course that was going to be there for him. But I, I thought that kind of put that argument to bed, no problem at all with Matt Corral being second team All SEC. But was there anything else 
that we wanted to hit on before moving on to some early SEC Bowl previews? Um, I just say this real quick. You know, this is the most like non Nick Saban thing ever, so I never expect him to do this. But Will Anderson, like Tyran Matthew, is a guy that really could have benefited, I think, from some PR. I think that if Alabama would have got out ahead of that and said, like, hey, here is Will they Anderson. Were late. Here's what here's what you need to view him as. He is a linebacker yeah. or he is an edge rusher. You need to consider him as like a D lineman essentially or like a linebacker. And here's what you need to view him as. Here are his accolades. Because he really kind of got, obviously he's on first team here, but like the whole like telling the story of the SEC thing, he got so underrated this year. Like we talked about, no Heisman invite. And it just seems like people couldn't really wrap their head around what position he played. And, yeah. uh, you know, he'll be fine. You know what I'm saying? Like he's probably, you know, knowing the way Alabama season's going, he, he has a lot to play for still but like he's in that situation uh you, you were talking about like another one of those multi-dimensional guys it's like weirdly enough i'm pro pr here i feel like more teams should be like hey and like it's like what, what the jazz do with rudy gobert whatever he was trying to win depot it's like here are my screen assists like you have to put things in front of people and be like Here's what you need to look at. Here's why this guy's impactful. I mean, with Will Anderson, you could look at sacks and TFLs. That's what's so upsetting. The stats were there, but there are some guys you might just need to be like, hey, here, here you go. Take take a gander at this. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, and and there are certain teams that, that really get out ahead of some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. and it, like we talked about with Antonio Johnson, sometimes if you're not seeing this guy who's like, oh, I go into a matchup thinking that he's going to be on the number one receiver. You know, like Alante right. Taylor, for example, for Tennessee. On a weekly basis, you knew that guy was gonna line up opposite of whatever the best receiver was, and you kind of know what he's going to be, and then you could just look at, all right, did that receiver go off, even if you weren't dialed in on him on the entire game? And that would kind of tell the story, whereas like, these other guys who don't necessarily have that same sort of individual matchup, obviously with Will Anderson, you'd be like, all right, how are these tackles really handling Will Anderson over the course of 60 minutes? And then with Antonio Johnson, it's like, how does just the entire offense prevent him from getting going? How do right. ball carriers avoid this guy because he's seemingly everywhere? But that is a great point and something that maybe we'll talk about more as we do like preseason All-SEC stuff next year and how some of these guys who don't necessarily fit in those traditional roles, Wondell Robinson, like kind mm -hmm. of being judged for what he does in the slot and kind of the way that he's moved around. Like some of these guys and the way that we judge them moving forward, we should appreciate that value and kind of the versatility that they that they ultimately bring to the table. Early SEC Bowl previews. We've got two, mm -hmm. just two today that we'll get to. The Armed Forces Bowl. Mizzou against Army. Army's a four-point favorite. The over-under I have is 286.5 Army rushing yards. Will? Oh, no. <laughs> that, that just hit me in the no, head. No, 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 oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. All right, well... That is how many rushing yards that Army averaged per game this year. That's mm -hmm. a lot. And, oh, by the way, they led the country with 44 rushing touchdowns. Again, a lot. The fact that Mizzou gets that type of matchup in the bowl game, that had to just feel like a sick joke for Mizzou fans because of how much the run defense really was a topic of conversation throughout this right. entire year. But, again, I'll say this. In November... Mizzou was number 34 in the country against the run. That's pretty good. <laughs> hey, the competition was also very good. Mm -hmm. That was against Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, Arkansas. Those three of those four, South Carolina being the one that's not part of that group, mm -hmm. top 30 in the country on the ground. So good rushing offenses that they faced. It wasn't like they were just facing Mississippi State and their numbers got a little bit inflated because they faced a team that ran the ball like eight times in a game right. or anything like that. So kind of take that for what it is. Dare I say, Mizzou actually showed some signs of life. So that's maybe a net positive. 
I love what Eli Drinkowitz is doing for this game, and I think it could become a bit of the new norm with some of these bowl games. Not all of these bowl games, because some of them are a little bit higher stakes, but for some of them, we're seeing a quarterback battle in a bowl game. That's what Mizzou's doing. They're essentially saying, Connor Bazelak, like, you're not really going to be our guy next year, or you're definitely not penciled in as that. Mm -hmm. So we're probably going to see three Mizzou quarterbacks in this football game. Connor Bazelak, Tyler Macon, Brady Cook, all playing in this one. Which is kind of crazy. And uh, you know what? Like, I don't I don't necessarily hate it. I, I think that Mizzou is sitting there at 6-6. Six and six. You need to figure out your guy. That's the biggest thing moving forward that, as we talked about, could like hold Mizzou back from getting to that next level. You recruit this great recruiting class, and I think Eli Drinkwitz is going to do really well in the transfer portal, but if you don't have your quarterback figured out, you kind of are what you are, mm -hmm. and you're dependent on so many other things. So I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Those three guys probably all going to get in the game. They're just going to take turns handing the ball off to Tyler Brady. That's what, exactly. <laughs> that's what this is going to go down. Yeah. Who's got the best form? Who's got the best handoff, the most graspable handoff? We'll see how that how that plays out. They got to do like that, that meme with the, the candid photo jogger where they're just smiling as they hand the ball up to Tyler. <laughs> Thumbs up, just like one-handed fake, boom. Yep. Who does it the best? I should have probably set the over under uh, Tyler Beatty's touches this one. Unofficially, I'll set it at 30. 30 seems about right for him because he's going to get a bit of rest, and that's that's good. The thing that I think is is just interesting about this matchup is that Mizzou is probably going to see like seven, seven different guys who can run the ball for Army. Mm -hmm. You're seeing a service academy. This is what they do. Although they did throw the ball a little bit against Navy. I think they had like double-digit pass attempts on that one, which is kind of weird. So they're going to air it out a little bit. Not exactly the air raid, but... Um, I think that we'll see just very two very, very different styles, of course, and we'll just see a whole lot of Tyler Beatty barring a last-minute opt-out. This is the type of game that people are going to hate on and say, oh, there are too many bowl games. But if you're mad about flipping on ESPN at 8 p.m. Eastern on a Wednesday night, that's on you. And hey, <laughs> all of you YouTube TV subscribers, you, you all, y'all, especially should not complain about bowl games because for a brief, I don't know, day and a half, you experience what it was like to not have bowl games. And that feeling was probably awful. Mm -hmm. Do you have YouTube TV? No. Okay. I don't either, but my mom does and uh, my in-laws have it as well. They both just got it within the last year. And yeah, your boy was panicking a little bit. And my brother is YouTube TV and they're in the same, they were like, hey, are we going to switch? Are we going to hold Pat here? And luckily for them, it got worked out. But, you know, anyways, appreciate every bowl game. Don't ever say that there are too many of them. That's mean. Yeah, if you're that. A, a season after we almost didn't have college football, if you're jaded about the armed forces, yeah. bro, like, do something else, bro. Like, go outside. No one's making you watch this. This is going to be here. awesome. Yeah. Anyway, I think Mizzou wins this game by a touchdown. I think Eli Drinkwitz loves being an underdog. An obtainable underdog, not like a Georgia level of underdog. That's <laughs> yeah, not his. Nobody enjoys that. Well, one, but, one yeah. team enjoys that actually. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Month to prepare. I, I think his team is is ready to go. So I think Mizzou wins that game as an underdog. Real quick, sorry on that. I will say, like you know, these are obviously different in that one's a service academy, but Mizzou 
pounded the heck out of the rock. I would say this. It's always great to figure out your starting quarterback situation, but they need to go ahead and try to win this game because especially with the amount of, um, you know, <laughs> well, listen, with the amount of kind of momentum they have going right now, have you ever watched a team just get the life beaten out of them by Service Academy? Yeah, and it's bad. <laughs> it's bad. It could happen. It could happen. But I also think the biggest thing you have to figure out is, is who's our guy? And look, we, we saw even in the Georgia game where Tyler Macon starts that game. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that was the only game that an SEC true freshman quarterback started all year, which is kind of weird. That just kind of speaks to hmm. the, the depth that quarterback in the SEC and the fact that we didn't have to see a bunch of these teams turn to true freshmen. That's a good thing. But even like Brady Cook played in that game. Mm-hmm. Played a decent amount. They have to get that figured out. If they don't, if they don't feel like they have their guy, then this allows them to evaluate. All right, do we need to get in the portal and let somebody let competition factor into that? Because yeah, you can do all the spring stuff you want, but let them see, let them like see actual game action and be able to do the side by side with them. I don't hate it. Yeah, no, I I agree. I'm just saying that it needs to be within the flow of the game. Like it can't just be like oh, like I wouldn't want them rotating series. Not that my opinion matters, but I would just think it would be like They're okay, not series. Yeah, like like just kind of go with the hot hand. But what I'm saying about that is like Army is one of these teams that if they see a little like break in your armor, like they will exploit it. So the last thing I would want if I'm a Zoo fan is like all right, we're down 14. Let's get this third quarterback in here, get some reps because. Army is, like I said, they're a weird team. Like, it's just weird to figure them out. So, I don't know. Hopefully, Mizzou can ride because they just have so much momentum right now. Like I said, the worst thing I would want for Mizzou fans is to just go out there and be like Houston that one year where it's like, oh. <laughs> oh. Okay, how about this? You got three quarterbacks, right? Right. They each get a quarter. Okay. Person who performs the best gets the fourth quarter. Oh, I love that. I love that a lot. I'm all the way in on that plan. Even if it's the middle of the series and you're like first and goal on the one, you're like, all right. Sorry, man. Get out of here. Take an extra shot, bro. Yeah, they have to use like one of those old school stage like like Bo Peep hooks where they like pull their quarterback out of the game. Anyway, go for it. All right, let's go on to the Gasparilla Bowl. UCF, Florida. Oh yeah, Florida's a six and a half point favorite. The over under I have two and a half. Household divided references. Shout out to my buddy Drew. He's a Florida grad. His wife, diehard UCF fan, they have been waiting on this matchup ever since UCF became relevant. And look, I hope they, I hope everyone who's dealing with the household divided, those types of things, you see those license plates very, very frequently in the Sunshine State. Mm -hmm. I, I hope that they're able to get through this without any hurt feelings because look, down years or not, this one will have plenty of bragging rights until these teams do actually meet in the regular season in 2024. It's weird on the Florida side because of this Emory Jones thing. Anthony Richardson is not going to be playing in this one. Emory Jones is entering the transfer portal, but he's basically saying, hey, one more time Mm -hmm. for old time's sake. Let's do it. Let's line it up. And you know, maybe we'll see a little bit more of this. Maybe he's just trying to show his market, his transfer portal market. I can avoid telegraphing throws and I can win on a big stage. Let me come play for your program. Don't hate that mindset. Look, mm-hmm. he's got a lot to prove, I think, at this point. And it would probably help him a lot to be able to go out there and, and, and light up UCF. That would certainly help him. But I don't necessarily think that happens. UCF. He's one of the better units in the country, forcing turnovers. Mm-hmm. And I really don't know who I could trust on that Florida offense outside of Damian Pierce. The good news for Damian Pierce, especially. Greg Knox, interim coach, B 
beat a certain Lamar Jackson in the bowl game with Mississippi State yep. a few years ago when Dan Mullen went to Florida. Look, Greg Knox, I don't want to say this definitively. Yes, I do. <laughs> Greg Knox is a bigger fan of Damian Pierce than Dan Mullen was. We know that, all right? Listen, we're bigger fans of Damian Pierce than Dan Mullen was. Part of the reason why Easily. Dan Mullen's employed right now. Yeah, Dan Mullen would like to say that Greg Knox was the person who controlled the backfield rotation, all those different things. But um, that was just a very nice way of deferring blame because then as Greg Knox takes over as head coach, it becomes the first game of the entire year that Damian Pierce gets double-digit carries. So Damian Pierce going to get double-digit carries against UCF? Probably. That would be music to Florida fans' ears. But I think the difference is those turnovers. And even a UCF team without Dylan Gabriel can take advantage of short fields. If and when Emory Jones turns the ball over for a defense without Zachary Carter, Diabate's in the transfer portal. They've been a disaster at linebacker since the Ventrell Miller injury. Mm-hmm. When I close my eyes and picture this, this bowl game and, and how this ends up, I picture a happy Gus Malzahn <laughs> who gets to walk off after an up and down year one and he gets this like big time gut. You know the Gus fist pump? Yes. You've seen it many a time. The boom, like he's gonna do that. And he's going to do that after beating an SEC foe in a bowl game. And I think UCF Twitter, when I close my eyes and think about it, <laughs> they're going to be a different kind of fierce. Will, is it fair to say that your boy Brady and other UCF fans, they would treat this one like, oh, I don't know, you treating Tom Brady after the Saints shut him out? <laughs> That's such a great example because it ultimately doesn't super matter, but to me it matters. <laughs> like it's yes. like you Very can't specific. exact no. It's like you can't take this. That's a great example because it's like the counter argument is so easy, but it fundamentally doesn't matter. <laughs> like it's like hey, okay, yeah, like this is just a bowl game, not to me, buddy. <laughs> and so yeah, like you can't control other people's levels of care. You're absolutely right, and I think that UCF, you know, their offense definitely struggled this year. They obviously lost to Navy. They had some very bad losses, as we talked about. And I think that this is the one way that they could really tell themselves, you know, uh, this has been a great year. You know, I joked about it last time that their recruiting class is like better than Florida's as of right now because of the number of players that Florida's has, not the quality for sure. But I think that Gus Malzahn is put himself in a position of stability at UCF, and I think that's great. Whereas Florida's obviously the other way. I will say, you know, huge, huge shout out to Emory Jones for coming back for this bowl game. You know, you very rarely yes. see this type Agreed. of thing. And obviously, you know, we saw it at LSU that's just kind of like walk-ons playing. And I love bowl games, man. I always have. And so I love it when a guy, you know, comes back for his team. Not saying there's anything wrong with it when guys don't, but I do think that that helps Florida a lot, especially for the rushing attack. But no, I mean, I, I think that you're right. Like UCF's defense has never been accused of being good necessarily, but it's very turnover prone. And you have a guy like, you know, Big Cat Bryant from Auburn who has been trying to get his draft stock going kind of since day one. This yeah. is going to be a, a game for him that it might be his last chance. You know what I'm saying? So I, I, I'm I with you in that I think that Florida will be motivated, but they're already on the Billy Napier, you know, experience as far as the fan base is concerned. These players have all kind of dealt with their decisions as far as are they going, are they leaving? That's no matter how you put it, a distraction. So I feel like UCF is just kind of beat like on the same drum beat and that's really helpful in bowl games. Here's a question, and maybe this is more so for Dan Mullen than it is for you, but <laughs> does this game count for the 2021 team, or is this the first game of 2022? Uh, this has got to be the 2021 team. I think they're totally going to turn the yeah. page after this. Yeah, you have to. You, you can't. I mean, I know that at this point, Florida does have that extra loss. People forget that because you have to count the Oklahoma game. But, <laughs> yeah, 
I, I think you leave this one in 2021. It's you know that it's it's a different sort of team here. But I look forward to um, the Billy Napier second quarter interview. We're totally gonna get that mm-hmm. where Billy Napier is at the game and he's up there pretending like he's like evaluating talent, all these different things. But got really, it's kind of just like yeah, he's got the binoculars doing the whole thing. But really, it's like he's there because you probably should be in this spot. Um, but yeah, I, I I wish this game were under some different circumstances and. I do kind of find myself rooting for Emory Jones a little bit because Mm -hmm. as much as we criticize him for the on-field stuff, like off the field, the kid couldn't have handled this better. And I love the way that he treated Anthony Richardson. I don't know what Anthony Richardson's future holds or anything like that, but I just love the way that he has handled this with poise from the jump. I have no problem at all with him entering the transfer portal. And I, I really do legitimately hope for the best for him. Clearly though, he wasn't the answer this year and I credit him for being very self-aware. Like. A lot of people aren't very self-aware and you could make the joke that he wasn't self-aware on the football field, but like off of it and mm-hmm. all those different things, like dude kind of got it. So I would not hate it all if that, if that kid got one more win at Florida. All right, let's go to two of my favorite people in this business. First, we'll do Joe Moorhead. Great to catch up with him and sort of look back on some of the Mississippi State stuff. As you can tell by listening to this, there are certain parts of that that Joe doesn't really want to revisit and understandably so. Mm-hmm. But we did get into a lot of different stuff and kind of talk about the new gig. And like I said, he's still coaching Oregon in the bowl game. So a very, very busy guy. I was grateful to be able to get that time with him. Then we will kick it to my brother to talk about some Michigan stuff ahead of the Orange Bowl. So first, Joe Moorhead, then my brother, Ryan O'Gara. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is one of my favorite people in this business, Joe Moorhead or I should say, new Akron coach, Joe Moorhead. Joe, I was fired up to see you get another opportunity to be a, to become a head coach. I'm sure these last couple of weeks have been a bit of a whirlwind for you, and it's crazy because you're also still coaching Oregon in the bowl game. Why was now the time for you to get back to being a head coach, and why did you feel like Akron was the right place for that? Yeah, um, you know, obviously, um, uh, since my departure from Mississippi State, uh, the, the past two years, I've had you know ample opportunities uh, as a head coach at the Power Five level, Group of Five level, uh, you know, Power Five coordinator jobs. And uh, my family and I set a very specific parameter, specific set of parameters uh, for the next head job that we would take. And uh, when Akron opened up, and actually found out about it through my wife, I, I wasn't even aware it was open. Uh, we decided it was a great fit for us from a personal. A professional standpoint, no, we decided to make a run at it. Okay, so my my then girlfriend, now wife, told me about a, a an internship at the Baseball Hall of Fame back in the day when I was a senior in college, and I skimmed through the email, didn't see it. She saw it, sent me the email, said you need to do this and figure this out, and it kind of set my career in motion. And so I have her to thank for being willing to read an email for that. Tell me the story about how your wife found the Akron job and found that it was open. Yeah, I don't remember even what week of the season it was because we were so immersed in, you know, what was going on with our uh, with our Oregon stuff. But I, you know, came home from the office one day and uh, I guess she had seen it online somewhere. I'm like, wow, and uh, got 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 on the horn with my agent, uh, told him to reach out and it would have interest, and you know, the ball kind of rolled from there. Share what you can about the the process because everybody always says it, it's so fast when you get a head job, like one afternoon. You're, you know, you're recruiting, and then the next morning you're on a plane accepting a new job with just a, a mountain of work ahead of you. Can you give our listeners some insight as to what that process was like for you? 
yeah, it, it wasn't an incredibly quick turnaround uh, just because, um, you know, this time through I wanted to be very judicious with uh, you know, making sure, you know, all the all the uh, puzzle pieces fit. Uh, so, you know, had 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 conversations with the, um, you know, the athletic director in the in the in the search committee, you know, via Zoom, uh, you know, had had an additional you know conversation with the president of the school and the and the AD flew out to, to Eugene to meet with me and uh, and then kind of had you know some more conversations with the family and then uh, then it went from there. What's your average night of sleep like right now with doing, you know, I, I, group of five signing day is different than, than it is at the power five level with the early signing period and all that stuff. But I got to imagine just anytime you start a new job and you're still trying to do, you know, you're still trying to finish your, your other job as best you can. I imagine the workload is pretty significant. So what's your, what's your average night of sleep? Because you're, you're in Oregon right now, like you've been all over the place. Yeah, I try, I try, I try to get a good eight. Uh, so, so the uh, the other sixteen during the day are are, are, are used pretty uh, um, efficiently. But it, yeah, you're right. You're you're uh, drinking water out of a fire hose. So you really have to compartmentalize your day and you know set aside time where you're going to work on your Akron stuff and set aside time where you're going to you know devote to Oregon Oklahoma game plan. And then you know it, on, uh, you you, you got to work on your recruiting for Akron and obviously putting your staff together and. And all the things that are you know necessary for the calendar and recruiting weekends and all and when we get back there in, in January, so that 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 takes a lot of time. But it's good that I've I've gone gone through that process and done it two other times. Um, and then you know playing in the Alamo Bowl against a defense like Oklahoma, who kind of does some pretty unique things that presents its own challenges too. So as long as you're organized and, and you keep things on track and uh, devote the uh, the time that's necessary to each each task, uh, it's worked out pretty well so far. How do you game plan for for a defense that I mean has so many moving pieces right now? Like Oklahoma takes their defensive coordinator and and Alex Grinch is off to USC and you don't know who's opting who's opting out and all these different things. Like how, how in the world can you actually prep for that, knowing that they might not even know what their defense is going to look like in a couple of weeks? Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good that's a good question. Uh, you know, we the only thing you can really go off of right now is film. You know, what I mean, so. Uh, you kind of do it in a traditional way, and you know, obviously, the guys who have publicly stated that they're opting out for the defense, you take that into account. But uh, you have to, you know, you hope. I say hope that you you assume that you know someone from that defensive staff is going to be calling the plays and was around Coach Grinch and you know his uh, game plan and process the whole season. So I'm sure there's going to be things that they did during the year they'll continue to do, and whoever's calling it'll, you know. <laughs> put his own little stamp on it. So uh gotta have a great contingency plan. <laughs> I remember uh I remember talking to you twenty nineteen SEC Media Days about some of the bravado that you had when you first got to Mississippi State and you had the learn your ring size comment and the telling Nick Fitzgerald to find a spot on your mantle for the Heisman. You did something that's very, very rare in this industry. You admitted a year later that you might have come in a bit too hot. How did that experience sort of prepare you <laughs> for the situation you're walking into right now at Akron, knowing that part of what makes you who you are is having that swagger? Yeah, I, I don't think you ever want to lose that. And, you know, they say attitude reflects leadership, and the kids are certainly going to feed off of and feel the confidence that I have in them, our process, and our program. And, and that's the big thing here. Uh, you know, we were taking over a team at Mississippi State that had averaged seven wins a season for, for I guess, 20 years, you know, prior to my arrival and in, in, in the prior nine. 
you know, which we which we achieved in our two years there, going fourteen and twelve. Yeah, so we we were we were, you know, taking over there was a little bit different of where the program was and where it is now. You know, with Akron having been three and twenty nine uh, the um, the past three seasons. So Mississippi State, you know, there had been a history of you know six and seven win seasons, and you were looking to build some excitement and kind of take it to the next level. Whereas at Akron, you're uh, you know we're looking to really this is a true rebuild operation. We've uh, exchanged messages over the last couple of years, but I've never really had the chance to ask you about the way that things ended at Mississippi State. And I know you've talked about this a, a bit, but, and even though you are at a, a different chapter, different place in your life, but what's your perspective on the way that, that everything kind of played out looking back now, two years later? Yeah, I mean, really, you know, there's things in life, you know, that you may not understand, you may not like, you have no control over, but, you know, you have to learn from it and move on from it. So uh, I'm confident that I gave absolutely everything that I had, my heart and soul, into that team, into that university, into that city and that state. And I think uh, when you look at it, you know, from an objective standpoint, and obviously sometimes we live in a perception-driven uh, world, you know, the, the numbers the numbers really show that, uh, you know, on the field uh, compared to my predecessor and those before him, that, uh, it, I mean, it all bears out that, you know, like I said, seven wins a season, uh, undefeated in the Egg Bowl, two wins over top 25 teams and two top 25 recruiting classes. That, uh, you know, I'm proud of what we did there. Now, it, you know, obviously um, didn't lead to a uh, continued um, uh, continued um, time time there for me. But, you know, that like I said, that happened. So I had, had to learn from it, had to move on from it. And, uh, you know, we'll uh, – you know, we'll, we're excited for this opportunity after. Everybody knows who's listening to this podcast that I, I banged the drum for you to be able to, to keep your job. And it was weird that it got to that place in year two where people were actually questioning it because of all the things you just brought up with the numbers and winning that second Egg Bowl there where, you know, you get to a couple of bowl games to start off. And yeah, the offense didn't necessarily take off in the way that you hoped it would, but at the same time, it's it's still year two. It's still so early. We can look back and see that the the drag my Yankee ass out of here line, it, it doesn't come up unless you have a sense that there's uneasiness about your future from people working internally. How much did you sense that there might have been some people working against you at that point? Uh, I, I don't I don't really want to delve too much into that. You know what I mean? You, you look back and you know, like I mentioned earlier, you gave it everything you had, and for one reason or the other, it didn't work out. And you know, it's like you said, you're, you're proud of the work you did. You know, uh, you know, and and you, and you move on. So it's, uh, you know, it's as the old cliche goes, it, it it is what it is. One of the things I've always appreciated about you is, and I sort of empathize with you, is the way that you approached moving to the south. You immersed yourself in the community. You ate at local places, and you would even turn on this this little southern drawl every now and then. And a whole lot of people right now are talking about Brian Kelly attempting a southern accent. And you're the perfect person to ask this to, as somebody who you know you've been a bit you've been all over the place, but as somebody who didn't necessarily grow up in that. Explain the mindset of why, you know, every once in a while you could slip in a little, a little Southern accent just to be able to, to kind of relate to the people that you're speaking to. I think the ironic part of that is even prior to coming to Mississippi State, I don't know if it's a, a Pittsburgh accent or a, a semi-Midwestern accent, 
when I would talk, people would ask me if, if I was from the South. So I, I don't know exactly <laughs> if it was necessarily me slipping into it, but as, as you know, the, the way I really talk. So I, I had been asked if I'd had a Southern accent even prior to going down there. Now some of the, uh, the yins that we say in Pittsburgh may have turned into y'alls. Uh, so, so that, that may have been, been a, a, a little bit of a change, but yeah, the, the way that I, I don't feel like I ever changed, but but some of the dialect may have changed to, to match the to match the uh, area. I gotta say, I, I thought you did it really well. Like even if you weren't trying or anything like that, I, I remember standing with you in between your various appearances at SEC Media Days and being like, "Wait, aren't you from Pittsburgh? Like, how did you dip into that?" <laughs> I I can't imagine that two years in Eugene allowed that that same sort of Southern accent, intentional or not, to blossom. Is that is that fair? Has it blossomed in Eugene? Yeah. Oh, no. I mean, I, I feel like I talk the same way I talk all the time, so I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's, a, like you said, a little, a little, uh, a little more emphasis on, on the, uh, the southern part. But, yeah, I, uh, hopefully I'm able to maintain my Pittsburgh accent where, where, uh, wherever, I, uh, wherever I'm coaching because that's the one I'm most proud of. These past couple years at Oregon, you got back to your roots as a, as a play caller, and I know that – the end of the season, it didn't necessarily play out the way that you were hoping for a team that had, you know, playoff hopes and all those different things. But you guys still won a ton of games and that Ohio State game. When did you kind of realize and these are my words, not yours. So you're not going to get in trouble yep. for saying this. But when did you kind of realize that Ohio State was soft and you could just bully them to death? Again, I'm not going to get you in trouble. Those are my words. But when did you kind of realize that you could take over that game? Uh, yeah, in, in no way, shape or form do we, do we think that... By, by any means, I mean you look at that front seven. I think they had they had two or three All Americans out of that front seven. So uh, you know, I, I think you know we put a good game plan together. I think the kids believed in it. And you know, there's some days you go out in the field and you're calling it, and it's clicking, and things are working. And that was one of those days. And you know, haven't been uh, haven't been to the horseshoe uh, you know several times and, and not come out with a win. You know, it, it felt really good to be able to close one out because if you remember the 17 game at Penn State, we were up 31-17 going into the fourth, and you know the wheels kind of fell off, and we ended up losing that one. And uh, you know, in the fourth quarter, it kind of started. You know, we were up, and then they started coming back. I'm like, oh no, not again! Uh, but we were able to we were able to close that one out, which was it was a uh, it was a good feeling. I'm sure you were probably head down, locked in. But is there kind of a, a cool story from that day that stands out? Um, uh, no, the cool thing was that I, I had, I had a bunch of my family members come up from Pittsburgh and they were at the game and, you know, seated in the Oregon section. And, uh, you know, when the game ended, uh, you know, all the fans ran down there and you know, got to go down and see my sister and my, uh, my, uh, my daughter, my niece, uh, my nephew, uh, her boyfriend and, you know, my best friend from back in Pittsburgh was there with his family. So to be able to share in a pretty cool Pretty cool moment, a great win with your family members, you know, after a game. That's that's the thing that sticks out for me from that one. You've been in these moments before where you've seen kind of the trajectory of a program change a little bit. And that that was that felt like one of them for Oregon this year, you know, just despite the ending. But at the same time, that was when everybody's like, oh, man, Oregon can go to the playoff. And, and these things that we're talking about are, are certainly on the table. 2016, Penn State, Ohio State, you were there for that one. The blocked field goal, the game that sort of changes the entire path of that season. What's it kind of like as a coach to see when that moment happens and you realize that different things are possible. Maybe where you guys have talked about that internally, but where now the outside world is talking about you in a different light. 
yeah, I mean, it, it's really kind of, you know, you don't see it from on the ground, but maybe from 30,000 feet, you kind of get a view after it happens. And Coach Crispo did such a great job with our team and keeping them focused, and he, he calls it the one and o, our one and o process. Uh, you know, but but it's certainly, you know, being a team, you know, like Ohio State is is kind of a watershed event when it, when they were ranked so highly, and you know maybe we weren't anticipated to win, but but you know, as you mentioned, didn't end up uh, the way we wanted to, you know, towards the tail end of the season, but uh, you know, it, it certainly catapulted us towards uh, the opportunity, you know, to be, to be in that playoff discussion. How do you think uh, Mario Cristobal is going to do with that Miami job? Mario? Yeah. Coach Cristobal? I think he's going to do fantastic. I think he's, uh, he's going to do an unbelievable job there. You know, you know for, for all the reasons, you know, everyone else believes uh, it, it'll happen. So, I, I, Coach is going to do – he'll do a phenomenal job, Miami. I, uh, I checked before hopping on this call. Dan Marino still follows you on Twitter, so that's, that's good. <laughs> I know – I remember – Getting him to follow you was a big deal a couple years ago. And the good news, he did not hit that unfollow button. He's, I think he follows like 76 people or something like that. But I was hoping that you were going to talk about that Ohio State win and how like Dan Marino sent you a text afterwards like, hey, love the game plan or something like that. Have you gotten your face-to-face with Marino yet? <laughs> Hopefully now being closer back to home and, uh, you know, we, we, we could have that opportunity. But uh, – there were probably upwards of 250 texts or more that I got after that game, and unfortunately, uh, Dan Marino was not one of them. So we're we're still waiting on that one. <laughs> we're gonna get Dan Marino to come to some some Tuesday night action. All right, that's that's in the works. Dan Marino is gonna come to Akron. Like if you could get Dan Marino on the sidelines for an Akron game, that's when you know. All right, this thing this thing is going in the direction that I would want. I would want. I would be way too distracted having him on the sideline calling the plays. So we'll we'll have to keep him up. <laughs> We'll have to keep him up in one of the suites because I, my, my, I, I wouldn't be able to. I would be too uh, too distracted to call a good game. <laughs> I uh, I know you got a ton going on right now. Uh, your new stomping grounds, uh, figuring all this stuff out, and trying to still uh, do what you can to help Oregon to a bowl victory. So I want to get you out of here on some uh, some rapid fire. Just five questions. First thing that comes to mind. Does that work for you? Let's do it. Best Christmas movie is what? Uh, Christmas Vacation. Good answer, good answer. If you had said a Christmas story, this call would have gotten awkward. We would not have <laughs> been able to talk very top, much. top five, but not top one. Uh, all right, I'm just going to pretend you didn't say that. Uh, let's let's move on to the next okay. one. Are you, are you committed to being a full-time beard guy? Please say yes. Uh, I, I am not fully committed. There are uh, others that want me to be, uh, but the... The joke of it is why it actually why why it came off is you you know I had that surgery in in, in the middle of the season and uh, uh, everyone asked me why I shaved afterwards and I said that uh, I didn't want the mortician to have to charge my wife extra if I had to go in the pine box after the surgery so that's why I shaved it off. so uh, we'll we'll see what happens in the season if we start getting a winning streak growing the the beard could come back. You you have the the full on like it, it's at that point, and I like too that you don't try and do the thing where you diet or something like that. You just embrace the beard for what it is, and you know there's there's some grooming there. But I, I think you got to be a full time beard guy. I've been saying that for yeah, a little it, while now. Like once once you started growing it out, it, it needed to stay. Well, the agreement in the quarterback room was we were allowed. It was I could groom, I could shave the neck area, but everything else was 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 uh 
was not fair game. So it was everything else was just that was in its that beard was in its natural state. There was there was no grooming that was going on to the actual beard. I was allowed to trim the neck area though. So uh, Lane Kiffin hated when I asked him about his diet at SEC Media Days, but you're not Lane, so I can ask you this: Are you still doing the uh, the intermittent fasting? Nah, man, I'm I'm off of that. Uh, <laughs> it it, uh, it does work and it works very well, but uh, you know, I got off of that, and I'm more on the the roller coaster diet right now than I am on the, the intermittent, uh, and it and it shows. It looks like it because I'm I'm not quite back up to the uh, outback bowl weight where I was tipping the scales, but I'm not down to the to the, um, the uh, 19 SEC media day weight either. You weren't eating until 6 o'clock in the day. That was nuts. Yeah, that was nuts, looking back on it, yeah. <laughs> um, would you fix anything about the transfer portal? Fix anything about it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I... I, I <laughs> I don't know because I, I I don't know what, what I don't know what the next step would be to to to, to amend it. Uh, I think I think it's uh, it is what it is right now. So I I, I don't I, I can't say yes or no because I don't I wouldn't know what the suggestion would be. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, I've seen people throw out the idea of a of a timetable when you can actually announce a transfer yeah, decision. Yeah, people, or something yeah, like I that. mean, people have talked about a cal- calendar change, you know, towards. December and January, but you know me, I like I like to see information before I really kind of make a comment or decision on it. For sure, for sure. Last one here. Now that you're going to be coaching during Maction, I, I feel like there's a path for you to have a, a new shtick or something like that, just so that people, you know, if, if they're tuning into that, that game during the week or something like that, and they, they, they see a, a Mac coach, they can identify him with something specific. Would you ever consider being two-point Joe and just always going for two-point conversions? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll talk to the offensive staff about it, but that uh, I think that may get some people to tune in. That sounds like a pretty good idea. Uh, let's just say this. We'll refer to what the chart, so it'll be sometimes two-point Joe <laughs> All right, we're going to make that happen. And every time you go for two, I'm definitely going to have to clip it up and make sure that, that everybody sees it. But I, I would be all for it. Uh, Joe, I, I really, really appreciate the time. Can't wait to watch this next chapter of your career. I don't say this to many people, but I'll be legitimately rooting for you. This is officially the number one Akron Zips podcast in existence. Love it. Go Zips, man. Appreciate it, Connor. Now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is my own flesh and blood, my brother, Ryan O'Gara who does great, great work for us on SaturdayTradition.com, our Big Ten site. For those who haven't checked that out, maybe you want to do a little bit of Michigan, uh, a little bit of Michigan intel, you want to learn more about your specific bowl team's matchup, I highly, highly recommend going over to SaturdayTradition.com and checking out all the great content that we've got up there. Right, we got to talk some Michigan stuff. Um, I know that there are a lot of Georgia fans who are looking at this matchup, and it's the Spider-Man meme. They're just pointing at each other, and they're like, hey, we're the same thing. We try and operate the same exact way. We should be able to have similar strengths and weaknesses in this game. A lot of the same questions we have about Georgia, we have about Michigan. Tell me why that's not necessarily the case, and this isn't necessarily just two teams who are mirror images of each other. Well, first of all, so glad to be back here. Um, about one year ago was my first appearance on the podcast, and I've been anxiously awaiting the second appearance. So uh, <laughs> glad to be here. 
Um, but yeah, I, I do think that there are some similarities with these teams, which we can get into. But I, I, th- I do think there are some major differences, starting just with, you know, what it means to be in this game. You know, Georgia's been hailed as a national title contender since the preseason. They expected to be here. Um, this is kind of the floor of what they thought this year would be. Um, they've been number one all year and viewed viewed as you know the team that's probably going to win the national title. Michigan was not ranked uh, to start this year. You know they were coming off a two and four year. People questioned whether Jim Har- Harbaugh should even still be the coach. Um, so they are very much. Um, I, w- I wouldn't say happy to be here, but um, losing this game isn't going to ruin their year like it will with Georgia. Um, and I think there is something to be said for that, for the pressure on Kirby Smart coming into this game versus Jim Harbaugh, who's kind of playing with house money. They beat Ohio State. You know, they won the Big Ten for the first time since 2004. You know, it's going to be – this year's going to go down in the record books as a great year for Michigan. You know, and I don't think they're going to be happy to be here and satisfied with just that. You know, I think they have much bigger goals. Um, but, you know, I think just, just from a pressure standpoint, you know, all the pressure's on Georgia. Even though Michigan's technically the number two seed or whatever, you know, everyone's going to be looking at Georgia, and this game is going to go down as, you know, something on Kirby Smart's legacy, whether it's good or bad, just in the same way that the Alabama game and the national title game in 2017 will as well. You know, this is one of those things where it's all the pressure's on Georgia, and Michigan can kind of come in here and, and just relax and play. I'm going to do something that for the first 18 years of my life, I would not have done. And that is admit that my big brother was indeed right and I was dead wrong. So a little peel behind the onion here for those who don't know. We do a weekly debate column every Friday during the season. Ryan and I debate a specific Big Ten topic. And one of the things that we did probably, I don't know, like two months ago was talk. We had something in it about Michigan's upside. And you said something to the effect of like, don't rule out the idea that this is finally the year in which Michigan beats Ohio State and gets over the hump. And I basically just laughed at you and said, look, I've seen this movie before. I know that Lucy is pulling that football and there's no way on God's green earth that Michigan's finally gonna get over the hump. So this is my way of saying, I was wrong. You were right about Michigan. When did you realize that this team is legit? And can we please forget that I actually said those words just now? (laughs) Well, I think you're being a little hard on yourself there because I think pretty much anyone around the country was probably thinking that way about Michigan. You know, the, the hype always seems to outpace what the team actually is. And you know, I, I definitely have fallen into that trap before. We're thinking, like last year, Michigan's back. You know, they beat Minnesota, just dominating win over Minnesota on the road last year. And you know, I was like, wow, Michigan looks great. They look really, really good. And then they go and lose to Michigan State the next week. So, anyways, um, this year, you know, I, I I think that if if you just took this, what Michigan did throughout the year, and you know, as we're going along, and you took away their actual name. And you pretended like you didn't know it was Michigan, kind of like the blind resume test, you know, that uh, guys like Matthew Berry do for fantasy football all the time, like blind resume, like, or Jay Billis does for the NCAA tournament or whatever. You know, if you just look at what they've done, you know, you can kind of see, okay, this is a really good team. And yes, it's Jim Harbaugh. And yes, they kind of have failed to live up to the hype in certain situations. And that certainly plays a, a role here. But, you know, this, this is a really good team on the surface. So just because it's Michigan doesn't mean we should just discount them. I think when it really set in for me was um, the Wisconsin game. At Wisconsin, just a 
Wisconsin team that absolutely whipped Michigan's butt the last two years. Yeah. Something like, I think combined scores are like 89 to 25. Like just games that have not been close at all. And I know Wisconsin got off to that rough start, but it was at Camp Randall. You know, it was the big noon kickoff was there. It was a big game. And, and Michigan really just controlled that game throughout. And, you know, Wisconsin's got the number one defense in the country, um, at least statistically. I know Georgia fans are probably, you know, yeah, clenching their right. fists right now. Uh, yep. <laughs> but, yeah, so just just the way that they won that game so convincingly, I think it was 38-17 to 17 was the final. I mean, it just wasn't really a game. And, you know, Michigan kind of, I think, proved it to themselves probably a little bit too that hey this isn't the same old Michigan you know we can we can win these tough games and you know and obviously once they beat Ohio State you're like okay this is this is a really good team that's going to be remembered for a long time in Michigan okay the Aiden Hutchinson thing is is really interesting because I think if you asked the average person in who hasn't necessarily watched him close and you've watched him as much as anybody this year I think the average person would say all right what were we doing with the Heisman finalists and why didn't Will Anderson with better numbers get more love than Aiden Hutchinson I kind of explained some of that and why I thought there was some Bama bias that worked against Will Anderson the way that you fill out ballots all those different things anyway you want to look at it Aiden Hutchinson is a fantastic player and if you don't account for him he can take over a game in the same way that a certain chase young could a couple years ago for ohio state so what i think a lot of georgia fans are wondering about is not oh is Aiden hutchinson as good as will anderson that in a mic in in a nutshell that doesn't really matter what matters is how does georgia handle him if you're planning on a way in which you can kind of minimize his impact and games in which you've seen him kind of be quiet and not necessarily take over. What's that plan of attack? Because is it, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, you just run right at him. Oh, you try and dial up these screens so that you at least give him some pause with the pass rush. Like what's the best possible way that Georgia can prevent Aiden Hutchinson from taking over? You know, if I knew that answer, I would probably be an offensive coordinator um, for a very good team. Because, look, smarter people than me have been trying to stop him all year. So um, I don't have the answer to that. I would say I think just in looking, I I don't know Will Anderson as well as you do. Um, I haven't watched him near as much. Um, I know what the numbers are. They're incredible. And Aiden Hutchinson's numbers, I don't even think, while they're very good, I don't even think they tell the whole story because this is a guy who's locked in on literally every single play. Like, I know it's cliche, but takes no plays off. I mean, he is, he is bull rushing. He's using his speed. He's, he's got all these different tools at his disposal. And he's just kind of steadily improved each year um, to the point where now he, he's so dominant and so locked in. And he's all, he also has, I think his dad played for, for Michigan, um, you know, and, and you just know how much it means to you. You know, he was one of those guys that was very vocal about uh, this playing playing last year during the pandemic and, and what what it means to him. And, and so, I, I just think that with his focus on every single play, you really have to be ready. Um, and I think the stats sometimes they aren't exactly they don't always line up. You know, with defensive players, you just never know like how those stats if they really tell the whole story. But he's bull rushing guys. He's shoving offensive linemen into the quarterback. You know, on some plays where he doesn't get a sack there, but or he's forcing the QB to come step up in the pocket and someone else is cleaning up. Michigan also has a really good pass rusher in David Ojabo. Uh, you know, yeah. where they they kind of rotate these guys on the other side. So 
really an offensive line has to always, you know, it's, it's coming from all angles with this Michigan front. Um, so I really think he's probably helped out a little bit by, by that too, where defenses can't always just focus on him necessarily. Um, but it is a lot like the Chase Young effect from a couple of years ago where he's at the top of every scouting report, everything, every play you have to know where he is. He's also great against the run too, which makes him, he's not just a pass rusher. You know, he's not just racking up numbers with sacks and whatnot. He's, he's great against the run too. So, um, it's going to be interesting to see how, how Georgia handles him and, you know, cause he, he is the heart and soul of the team. You know, he is the emotional leader. He's the leader on the field. You know, he's, he's, He's everything you could want for in a college football player. PFF's highest graded edge rusher in all of college football is Aiden Hutchinson. He has been a complete player, and you know he he does feel like a guy who's going to kind of get his no matter what. It's just a matter of whether or not you can contain him to the point where he's not making those game changing plays, or maybe his his key moments come when the game is you know it's a two possession game or something like that. I think what's interesting about Michigan and what's lacked so much in years past is they have not had this ability in the trenches to just say. We don't even care if we're predictable. We're just going to line up and beat you. And there are so few teams who have been able to do that at this level in recent memory in college football where it's netted a playoff berth. And I think Georgia, to a certain extent, has been that in the past. And that's why a lot of people look at some of these comps and say, all right, these two teams, really similar in what they want to do. Game script. I don't think that Michigan is a team that's necessarily built to come back from behind. But at the same time, they at least had been in that spot against Penn State. On the road, hostile atmosphere. Yeah, hostile atmosphere in which Illinois won. That's neither here nor there. Still, against a really good Penn State defense, they had to figure something out late in a game. And Georgia still, I mean, even by virtue of losing in blowout fashion to Alabama, still hasn't had to do that yet. How high is your confidence level in Cade McNamara to be able to make key conversions late in a game against Georgia when, you know, those opportunities have still been limited. He does have the Penn State game, but overall for Cade McNamara, it's been pretty limited in terms of what they've needed from him down the stretch. Yeah, one of the things I've noted about why I've liked Michigan all year is that they've been in control in every single game. And I think that speaks to the way Jim Harbaugh's had them prepared each and every week. I mean, I think they went into like the sixth game of the year. I think Nebraska late in the third quarter was like the sixth game of the year. It was the first time they trailed all season. I mean, that, that's pretty remarkable. And they, they've only trailed for 29 minutes this year. Um, Georgia has trailed for about 59 minutes, and granted, 39 of those minutes came against Alabama. Um, so they'd only trailed for, for 20 minutes. So they, it was kind of going before the SEC championship. It was kind of similar. Both those teams had rarely trailed this year. So it kind of it brings up a good question, as you say, like how, how are they going to react when they're in that situation? Like can Kid McNamara lead a comeback? And I still think that's to be determined. You know, I, I, the Penn State game, that was one one instance um, where they had, they had a key fumble and uh, Penn State got a field goal to go up 17-14 to 14 late in that game and, and Kate McNamara let him down the field um, and they scored a touchdown with a couple minutes left to win that game on the road, um, as you said, in a hostile environment. Um, so will that translate into the biggest stage there is? I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't. Um, because it takes on a whole different level, um, especially against a defense like Georgia, where you're asking a lot of them. I will say this. Michigan has so many different weapons offensively. They don't, they're not relying on one guy. You know, I think Michigan State is so reliant on Kenneth Walker. Um, I think Michigan is much more 
um, varied and, and who, like Eric all had the big play that day against Penn State, but it could be Blake Corm. It could be Hassan Haskins. Angel Anthony had the huge game against Michigan State. They just had so many different guys all year um, where role, certain role players are stepping up and making these key plays. So I do think that bodes well to where they, they shouldn't be laser focused on any one thing um, in those key moments where they can really, Josh Gaddis has done a great job of spreading the ball around. I mean, it's really just worked out perfectly. His whole vision has just just kind of come to fruition this year. So um, that, that bodes well for them in those spots. Defensively, go figure that like Michigan turns into this, well, I shouldn't say go figure. We, we probably could have seen this coming a mile away, but Harbaugh finally fires Don Brown and says, oh, you know, getting kicked in the teeth by Ohio State and letting up 62 points, that's probably not acceptable and we can't continue to run it back with him and his defensive scheme as much as he was loved in that locker room. It's, it's just not working. And now defensively, like, they're at a very high level, even outside of Aiden Hutchinson. But I'm trying to think, and I'm thinking out loud a little bit here, have they seen anybody quite as dynamic, middle of the field operating as Brock Bowers? Because Brock Bowers is not a human being. For my money, he was the best tight end in all of college football. And I know the kid from Colorado State won the Mackey Award, and he put up the, the big receiving numbers at the group of five level. So take that for what it is. But like Brock Bowers is a physical freak. And I don't think like a Jeremy Ruckert or anything like that for Ohio State, kind of look up and down the tight ends that they've had to play against. I, I, that's what I struggle to figure out with this Michigan team is how is he neutralized? How are they figuring out those answers? Because even Bama, as much as Bama defensively kind of put the clamps on, they didn't have an answer for Brock Bowers. Brock Bowers looked like the only guy who was able to make plays for that Georgia offense. Is there anything that Mich- that says to you Michigan can kind of keep him relatively contained and this defense is up for that task? That's going to be a big question, and I do think that is that is the spot to watch. Um, I, I think Michigan's secondary has been really good. I think up front they've been very good. But like you said, Brock Bowers is so unique, um, and he's been really, really fun to watch this year. I mean, it's uh, you know I don't know where he ends up in a few years if, if we'll be talking about him as you know an elite NFL tight end down the road. I don't know, but I know he's an elite college tight end, um, and that certainly would you know would make Mike McDonald, who's Michigan's new defensive coordinator. I'm sure he's he's thinking about all the different ways that Georgia can use him um, and just how unique he is. Michigan has not seen someone like that. I mean, but in fairness to Michigan, like where else, you know, unless you played Georgia already this year, who else has seen someone exactly like him? You know, it's kind of like preparing for Kyle Pitts last year. Like he's just so unique in what he's able to do. And that's why he's such a valuable player is there's so many, so few guys who can do what he does. Um, So I don't. I don't exactly know. I don't have a good answer for you. How are they going to stop him? I just know that you know it, it does probably help to have a month to prepare for him. Um, but they have not seen anyone because Ohio State doesn't use Jeremy Ruckert. You know they they used him a little bit more last year, but really they haven't used him as much as a receiver. They they just have so many weapons on that offense. They don't use the tight end as a big receiving option um, anymore. So you know that that's something new for Michigan that we'll have to see. I feel like we might disagree on a prediction of this. Before we get to a couple of other things I want to hit on with you, have you settled on a on a final score prediction? Because I think I'm, and I'll, I'll I'll talk about this later on. This this is subject to change. I think I'm going Georgia 27-17, and I know they'd be covering at this point. And 
given what we've seen from the Georgia offense, scoring 27 points uh, against the defense that good. I don't know. We'll, we'll wait and see on that. Could get a defensive score with a strip and with a with a scoop and score or something like that. But do you have a, a prediction right now? I haven't settled quite on a final score, um, but I, I, I do, do think it. Michigan's going to win. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I do think Michigan is going to win, um, and I'll tell you why. I think there's there's so much what I said earlier. There's so much pressure on on Georgia right now. Michigan has kind of been in a similar spot with the quarterback situation, just in that you know JJ McCarthy, the five star freshman, who I'm sure will get some some snaps against. Georgia, um, Georgia fans should read up a little bit about him. Um, but Kate McNamara. Wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Little... Before you continue, before you continue, did you just say a backup quarterback can take snaps against Georgia in a meaningful game? Because that you just made Georgia fans like sweat bullets by saying that. Yeah, yeah. This this could this could be a second coming of Tua here. Um, oh gosh. <laughs> no, I, 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 <laughs> uh, sorry, Georgia fans. Um, you know, I, I I love the way Jim Harbaugh's handled the quarterback situation this year. He he named Cade. I wrote about this in the preseason. He named Cade McNamara the starter right away. You know, a month before the season opener, all these teams like to be so secretive. I thought Jim Harbaugh did a great thing in saying Cade McNamara's earned this with the way he finished last year. He's got the most experience coming in. He's going to be the guy, and let let let's let him walk around campus for a month or two and feel like he's he's the guy. We're going to put all that pressure on him. He's going to carry that weight, and. Jim Harbaugh stuck with, has stuck with him the whole year, kind of how Kirby stuck with Stetson Bennett pretty much the whole year, ever since JT Daniels got hurt. Um, J.J. McCarthy has a ton of promise and looks like he's going to be a great player for Michigan at some point. But Cade McNamara has really solidified himself as as a very good college player. I think he's going to come into this game. You know, He got the, the NIL deal with, uh, with Tom Brady. Not sure if you saw that. Um, and it's well-deserved. Um, I mean, he's going to come into this game with a ton of confidence. Stetson Bennett is coming off a game where I, I don't think it was his fault that they lost to Alabama, but I do know that once they got down, they Georgia didn't feel like they could win that game. You know, yeah. once you know Stetson Bennett was not going to be the guy to lead them back. He's 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 had a great year, um, but there, there are going to be so many questions coming into that game um, about what he's going to be able to do and whatnot, and that that would make me feel uneasy if I was a Georgia fan. I think Michigan has has a pretty firm grasp on what it is. It's playing its best football of the year. You know, it, it finally got over that Ohio State hump. And then, you know, and Ohio State has a really good team this year. They're, they're flawed defensively, but, I mean, number one offense in the country. And Michigan held them down. You know, then the question is, okay, is, is Michigan going to come into this this Big Ten championship game, you know, with a letdown? You know, they're going to be – they kind of peaked the week before. It's just, This doesn't mean as much to them, you know, as being Ohio State. They dominated Iowa. It was 42-3. to three, Um and it was no surprise, you know. Michigan, you know, just just took it to them from the very beginning. Um, went up two scores midway through the first quarter, ball game, whatever. I think Michigan is playing its best ball of the year. Georgia comes in with a ton of pressure, a blowout loss um, to its rival. Like here we go again, you know that that kind of doom and gloom that's you know usually comes with being a Michigan fan. So I, I do think Michigan's playing better ball right now. Um, so I, I think Michigan's going to win a close one. Um, I haven't settled on an exact score. I'll say, you know, uh, 24 to 20, we'll say. 
We will not. Um, we'll, we'll bleep that part out for for the Georgia fans. We'll um, actually, you know what? I, there's something to be said for that, and I think actually Georgia fans at this point kind of wouldn't mind if if everybody was talking up Michigan because of how much everybody was talking up Georgia going into the SEC championship, and then Saban talks about the yummy rat poison right after, and that's the question that I have for this one: Do we see a Georgia team that looks like it plays on its heels, or do we see a Georgia team that looks pretty pissed off? Pretty pissed off that for the last month, after it put together one of the most dominant regular seasons we've seen in the 21st century, that people are all of a sudden out on them as the favorites to win a national championship. Do we see that Georgia team? That depends, in my opinion, on Kirby Smart and the job that he's able to do. A um, couple, couple things that I want to get to with you. We love bowl season. Like we, we have. So for those who don't know, like Ryan and I have been doing a bowl mania group, uh, basically like since end of college something like that I, I don't know like 10 years that we've been that we've been doing this we love this time of year and we would love to to have a scenario in which all these bowl games meant a lot to specific teams and the opt-outs didn't happen we both understand why they happened but we agree that sitting there and blaming a college kid for sitting out isn't necessarily the solution because that's not going to do anything you had a great idea a great great idea about incentivizing bowl games what exactly do you think would be the way to do that that could at least get the ball rolling and why now could be the time to make that happen as opposed to like five years ago with some of the ways that we could set this up? Well, I, I think you got you got to give them a reason to play because obviously they're in their minds, they're doing a calculation just as we all should in every aspect of our lives, the risk versus the reward. You know, what am I getting out of? I'm spending time doing this. You know, I'm risking something but I'm ultimately gaining something. That's why I do something. That's why I, I spend my time doing whatever, you know? So they don't feel like the risk, uh, the reward is great enough for the risk. So you have to give them something to make them, to kind of tilt the scales back in favor of these bowl games. Um, and I, I think you got to pay them. You know, I think, I think, and, and rather than broadly just say, pay the players, pay the players, you know, which I'm sure fans are tired of hearing media members say that. Believe me, I get it. <laughs> um, but in this era of NIL, why couldn't we have the sponsors of all these bowl games? We know how valuable these bowl games are. Um, they, you know, they're all worried about, you know, making their money, um, and they make a lot of money from these, you know, from the TV deals and whatnot. Um, and we know how valuable they are because they don't want them to go away. You know, when the playoff inevitably expands and whatnot, they want—they're trying to preserve all these bowl games because they—they're a cash cow, you know. Um, so why not? Why don't we give the athletes a cut? Why don't we say, you know, the winning team of this bowl game gets—and I'm just throwing out a number, right? Like 500k to the winning team from the bowl sponsor. So it's not the schools paying them. You know, it's the sponsors. Yep. And they can divide. They can anyone who plays in that bowl game is going to get a cut, whether it be like 10 grand, 20 grand, or whatever the math. Like, well, whatever the math works out to where they get maybe five, 10 grand a player or starter gets a certain amount or, you know, anyone on the two deep. I, I don't know what that answer is. Um, anyone who appears in the game gets a cut and you divide it. And then the losing team gets like 250 grand or, or whatever that amount is. Let's make it worth their while, because if you're going to be playing in that game um, and you're going to get, you know, 10 grand or something to play in that game, if you win or 20 grand or whatever the amount ends up being, depending on the revenues, you know, then that would be much different than saying, okay, we'll I have to go out here. You know, there's going to be a half empty stadium. You know, it's going to be a very different atmosphere that I'm used to playing in. You know, it, it just doesn't feel like a normal game in front of, you know, a packed house at your home stadium or you're at a, 
a road environment at a conference rival. You're playing a team that maybe you don't have a connection to or a built-in rival with. So, so anyways, give them something in return. Like, I, I don't understand why why that hasn't been discussed here. And as more and more players opt out, it, it's just frustrating that we can't give them something in order to make that deal a little bit sweeter. The NIL stuff state by state is still a little bit murky. I know Florida just changed the laws last week with the Travis Hunter stuff that got changed the same exact day. Not a coincidence that that happened, but I would love to see that scenario. And I've been telling anybody who will listen that I think that's a way to kind of combat some of this stuff. And if we really put our resources into figuring this problem out, I think it could net great results. And now is the time to be able to try and take advantage of some of this stuff. If it's the Chick-fil-A, you know, and even if that means getting rid of like the, the swag bag or whatever, people would rather have cash over stuff every single day of the week. And you could definitely justify doing it. It would just be a matter of kind of the breakdowns and some of that. I support that 100%. I, I am fully on board with that. And I'm like I said, I'm going to throw it at uh, Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl president and CEO Gary Stoken because he of all people right now is probably thinking to himself like, man, like what do I got to do? Kenny Pickett, Kenneth Walker, these guys that aren't playing in his game. That sucks. And bowl executives, I hope, will look at what's happening, what's going on, and try and get creative instead of just doing the curmudgeon thing of being like, oh, well, kids these days. All right, this is your problem. It's up to you to find a solution for it. So 100% on board with that. Right before, uh, before we move on here, um, and well, we're actually recording this um, in the same house, our childhood house. So go figure uh, that we were able to, you know, we're doing this on opposite ends of the house. I am not in your, I'm in my childhood bedroom actually doing this of all places, but I want you to tell the audience one thing that I'm good at since I did you the honor of apologizing to you for being dead wrong in the beginning of the podcast. What is one thing that your boy is good at because I need my ego, you know, propped up a little bit here. One thing that you're good at. Wow. Man, oh, jeez, that's how, how much. Don't take your time. Here? Don't take your time. Come on. <laughs> okay, well, Connor is great at planning a bachelor party. <laughs> Let me say that. Um, I know you guys had. Uh, I think you did a segment on it back over the summer, or maybe it was in the spring. I guess um, about it. Um, Connor, he did a great job. He gave a great speech at my wedding over the summer. Um, he is an excellent job at organizing and preparing. He had an itinerary as detailed. Like when he gets ready for this podcast each week, you know, he's, he has pages and pages of notes and details and, and we'll, you know, I'm sure we'll get a kick out of that. And the bachelor party, my bachelor party was the same way. And uh, that was great because everyone knew what we were going to do at every time of the day. And we could all, you know, we were, there was no like randomly doing this or randomly doing that. Everything was planned out to a T. And that's great. And no one has to worry about anything. And uh, Connor, so Connor is great at planning and organizing, great at giving a best man speech. Um, I'll never forget it. And uh, I think anyone at the wedding would agree. That's. I'm just going to do this. We're going to do this once a year. Uh, we'll have you on to talk some Big Ten, some Big Ten stuff. And just like last year, I'll just put you on the spot and have one one thing that you say about me that makes me feel really better because coming from you, Ryan, I mean, it means it always means a little bit more. Um, this has been great, though. It's been a lot of fun. Glad we got to do this. We'll do it again sometime. Middle of the offseason, maybe we'll do some pre-draft stuff as well. Um, and we might have to throw a wager out there with this Michigan-Georgia game. I might have, We might have to circle back to that because 
we're, we're obviously a little bit on different sides of the spectrum there. You having watched so much more Michigan and I having watched so much Georgia this year. But uh, Rye, really, really appreciate the time. We'll do this again, man. Thanks so much for having me. So the pod schedule for the rest of the week, we're going to be recording on Wednesday. That pod will come out on Thursday. We will not know the results of the Mizzou game at that time. So what we'll do is we'll preview all of the non-playoff bowls except for LSU. Our good friend Gary Stoken is coming on. We'll talk about the Peach Bowl. I'm going to throw out a few bowl game tweaks and see kind of how he handles that. And then we'll spin it forward to that all too juicy Oregon-Georgia matchup that he's got on the table next year to kick off this season. We'll also do a Christmas gift edition of Figuring It Out. Leave us a five-star review, like, subscribe, go subscribe to our newsletter, go subscribe to College Football Uncensored, and Saturday Lives Forever wherever you get your podcast. Join the Facebook group, hear your name read on air with Figuring It Out or Bold and Brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.